Pray with me. Um, just after singing that, I mean, what's going to do is just pray. And um, Father, what we just sung is exactly the heart of your people. We want the glory of your name to be the passion of your church. And from this pulpit, we want the righteousness of God to be the holy flame that burns within us. That the saving life of Christ would be the treasure of our lives. And Father, thank you that you've given us your word to accomplish that. And we don't, look, we don't need to look anywhere else to see your glory than your word. Though creation testifies of you, Father, it's only in your word where we see what Christ has done for us. And that is our heart this morning, Father, that through your Holy Spirit you will work in me and work in your people. That I would be able to preach for your glory for the exaltation of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would be uh, working, not just in me, but in your people, to not just listen to your word, but to apply your word. This is not of our own doing. This is something that only you can do. And that is why we come before your throne of grace asking you for the same, um, uh, making those prayer requests made known to you as you would tell us to do. So, Father, be pleased now in this time, through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, this, this past week, we've seen some events happen. Um, I just want to highlight three of them. One of them, as all of us know, that we've been hearing some time is that big uh, F1 formula race, right? The, with the fake marina. <laughs> well, all the marinas that we have in in Miami and all that, and yeah, you know, we built a fake marina. And, but hey, there was a Grand Prix, and the tickets were insane. I mean, I think on the low end, from what I've heard, you guys probably know better than I do, I think on the low end, you're talking about $800. Uh, VIP packages going north of $30,000 uh, for the weekend, and people there spending money. And, and of course, the scalpers didn't miss out, right? The scalpers were there as uh, Miami being the fraud capital. You know, it, you, you start seeing everybody making these fake tickets, selling them, then you go, this is not real, buddy. <laughs> and then you might want to go back. I don't know where you got it from, but sue the guy that, that sold it to you. But that, that's, that's what happens here in Miami. That was a big event. That was a big talk. Um, you know, people from all, you know, in our other offices were asking, hey, so the Grand Prix was in Miami. How was it? I'm like, none of us went. <laughs> Who can afford that? Like, is the office going to go ahead and pay for it? No. But everybody was excited. How was it? So that's one event. And then on a more sobering note, there were two other events. One of them had the opportunity of visiting someone at a hospital on Monday that our brother Dayron had told me, hey, just got a text, someone, um, got to give the gospel and visit them. Terminally ill, probably doesn't have much time left. And we go, it's Monday night. And very humbling, very humbling. Much so that the family's here um, this morning. Cancer patient, but just get to see the joy of the Lord. I didn't know them. I didn't know her. I just knew that they were there and we just asked questions. And it, everything seems to indicate that she is at home with the Lord this morning. She passed away yesterday. 
left behind her children. And it's, it's very humbling when you get to see that. This is the hard part of ministry. Um, you probably saw it on Edwin's Facebook post, right? Um, just what it means to be, I mean, there's one thing that we can do from this pulpit, but that, and I'm not the only one, by the way. There's other people that have been there um, that have shared the gospel. And then the other event is visiting our sister Chewy on Friday. I've been able to, I've been trying to go out there and visit her, and I just haven't been to because I even, I, I work in Brickell. And I'm like literally a, throw, a stone's throw away, and I couldn't make it out there because one thing happens and just couldn't. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going. Be ready at 7 in the morning because that's the only time I can go. And I went there. And what a joy just to be able to see our sister. Also, dealing with cancer, going through her chemotherapy or chemotherapy. And you just see this joy in this sister. Sending her love to all of you. Just encouraged as, as can be. And you think and you look at, I'm like, I just look at her and I'm like, Lord, I'm, it's, I'm, 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 you're here. You're here. You just see that. And I'm not the only one that's gone to visit her. There's others. And I, and I can guarantee you, which by the way, thank you for those of you that have done that. Because that is exactly what living the faith looks like. It's not something that just falls on me or the leaders of the church. It's a community thing. It's a gospel thing. And seeing her, and, she, and you go there thinking, oh, I just want to read scripture, encourage you, and then you are the one that leaves being <laughs> ten times more encouraged. You know, and she's telling you, look, I'm just using this. This is my ministry. The Lord gave me this. The Lord doesn't send a bad gift. This is my gift, and I'm using it to go ahead and share the gospel with my neighbor who's uh, Spanish, and she doesn't know the Lord and rejects the gospel. But there I am, doctors, nurses. No, I don't care. You guys are going to give me this therapy. It might work, it might not, but either way, my joy is secure. And that's what she tells the, the, the medical team, the, med- the medical staff. And then on the other end, just found out this morning, our brother Mike, his father passed away yesterday. And you know that we've been praying for him. You know that he has a heart, had a heart, that just praying for, for this man to come, 98 years old, rejected the gospel. Rejected the gospel. Just not long ago, I had my, my dad at 70 something years old and to know the Lord. Beloved, it's. This is the reality of life. You know, and in the midst of this, I'm trying to prepare a sermon. I'm like, Lord, you know, I hear I have this text, and nothing comes to mind, and just, I've already given you everything. This is what spiritual authenticity like. What you guys have done with our sister Chewy, being able to go to a hospital, our brother faithfully preaching the gospel. Beloved, this is what life looks like. And in life, you have people that are spiritually authentic. There's some, yes, and I'm not called to figure out who's faking it till they're trying to make it. But we have people that are authentic, that are in this room sitting right here, living their faith authentically. And this is the text that we have here this morning that sits before us in Acts 21. We have, see, Christianity has been made. It's, it's a faith, right? It's all about attitudes. It's all about moralizing, moral posturing. And then we come to realize that the, the Christian faith 
is actually something completely different. It is not about do more. It's about a gospel that says that Jesus, the sinless Savior, came and died in the place of sinners on a cross. That when that is believed, when that is embraced, when that is proclaimed, produces authentic faith. It produces authentic concern, authentic fellowship, authentic conviction. It produces authentic joy. Not because you're trying to produce that authenticity. It's a natural byproduct. Because the one that's doing it in you lives in you. And does it in you and through you. That is what the, and so now that is what helps us deal with life's vicissitudes. Those changes in our daily lives when we're, trying, we're thinking we're going right and all of a sudden the course turns left. That is exactly why the gospel is so important. That is precisely why we need to embrace the gospel and hold on to it. And so this morning we have in our reading Acts 21. I'm going to read 14 verses for us. Acts 21. And I hope, and again, my outline is pretty simple. I only have two points. Could have been three, but just change it up, couple them up. Authentic concern and fellowship and authentic conviction. That's exactly what we're going to see here this morning. And, and I, as we're reading it, I, I pray that you, you, on, you put on your, your, your gospel lenses, your spiritual lenses, and uh, may the Holy Spirit work. So this is the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading out of the ESV. For of you that are visiting, we've been studying the book of Acts consecutively. At least I have been. Our brother has been going through Thessalonians, and our brother Daryl, he preaches, goes through uh, the Psalms. Um, but... This is where we find ourselves this morning in our study in Acts. It says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit Paul, not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews 
at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And this is a reading of God's word, from God's word. And the first one, we see this authentic fellowship and concern. Let me deal with the fellowship first. Immediately in verse 4, something, and, and Paul, again, he's, been, he's in Asia Minor, he's going back to Jerusalem, he's going through these different spots. Um, first part there, we see that he's able to, the ship starts unloading cargo, so he's got perhaps some time, right? It's not just a stop and go, but we've got some time here, might be possibly even loading some more cargo right there. We don't know, unloading and loading. But point is, is that he's there. He's got time. And there's something that Scripture, that Luke writes here, that's very important. He says, he sought out the disciples. This is something not new, but we've been seeing this continually throughout Acts. Wherever Paul goes, goes to the, to where? The synagogue. He's there. He's always preaching the gospel, but he's also seeking out people. He's seeking out brethren. He's seeking out disciples. And here, Luke writes, he's in Tyre, the loading cargo. We're there for seven days, and he seeks, he sought out the disciples. Paul's consistency here in looking for the saints wherever he goes. Now, last week we heard our brother saying, is my mic going in now? Um, he, he said, doing good unto others is what? I'm test you now. If you weren't here last week, it's okay, you get a pass. But it's an active, right? It's an activity, something active we do. It's not passive. This is no different. Seeking out God's people is something that we also must do actively. It is not something that we just simply sit back and say, well, people have to call me. I'm waiting for, the, for, my, for my brother and my sister to call me. I'm going through something. Let them call me. No, you are also called to be active in the lives of your brethren. This is what we see continuously. I'm sure Paul could have done many other things, but he makes it a point to seek out the disciples. And that word, sought out, means exactly that. He's looking for Actively, when he gets to Miletus, call the elders. Paul's heart is no different. It's consistent. This is exactly what we see. Now, can fellowship be something that's spontaneous? Absolutely. It could. But that's the exception. That is the exception. We can't expect fellowship to be something that's just spontaneous. It'll happen when it happens. No. We as believers are called to be active, involved in each other's lives. This was the model in the New Testament. The Philippians giving from each other, taking, I mean, they, they were just selfless. For you to give something, you have to know that the other person needs something. 
And for you to know that you have to be involved. You have, hey, what's going on? Paul, what's going on over there? Writing letters. We're hearing this. Let's meet that need. We get newsletters from Spain and from people in, in, in the Dominican Republic serving those in Haiti. Praise the Lord for that. How can we meet that need? But that's on the giving side. But here, locally, how are you, how are we involved in each other's lives? How are we actively seeking out each other? Technology is great. It's great that I can go ahead and grab a cell phone and call. I do that often. We do it in the morning, sometimes on your way to work. I have a long commute. Sometimes I'll, I'll give someone a call. Early in the morning, sorry, but we, we talk. Good time to pray. Good time to encourage each other. You have the technology and you have the means to do so. Many of you kids weren't there. I used to remember my grandmother always writing letters. No one writes letters anymore, right? Very few people do so. You have the technology, use it. Use it to reach out and to be involved in other people's lives. One of the main things that when, when this is kind of at least when it, it's home for me is when we go camping. Some of you have actually gone camping with us. And there in camping, we usually have a Sunday service. Just so everybody gets there right before everybody starts packing up, everybody gathers around, and there we are fellowshipping in the woods, in the wilderness, so to speak, right? And singing, reading the word, preaching the word, and fellowshipping. And every once in a while, you have some other people around the campsites that will come in and say, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, you guys are believers? And they come in and they join. Why? We enjoy it. We're like, hey, praise the Lord. This is what it's for, right? To see people come together. You guys know what this is like. You guys know what tailgating is. You guys have seen tailgating. You've been at a Dolphin Stadium. You know what people do. Just pop, you know, grab that tailgate, pull it down, take out the barbecue, pull out the little tent, ten, ten by ten, and now you're sitting, everybody's there tailgating. And what are they tailgating about? They're tailgating because they have something in common. The same team. Or, it could be a musician, it could be a musical band. I, I used to follow a band that they, they have people that tour with them and just go, and wherever they go, there they are tailgating in the, outside the stadium before the concert and, and just singing their songs. Yeah, but do you understand that we have something beyond, infinitely better than a sports team? That we have something that's beyond, that, infinitely better than a musical act? We have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, He's the one that unites us. It's no longer just this, you know, uh, well, yeah, this gospel. No, it's the gospel. It's the one that redeemed us. It's the one that shed His blood on the cross for us. That is why we now come together and can fellowship. And we can seek each other out. Precisely because of Jesus that unites us. It's the blood of Christ. But notice also that this is not, this is not just a one-man show. If you take the time, this is, this is not an I, but a we. Eighteen times in these 14 verses, we, 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 we. Look at it, you can circle them, underline them. That's exactly what we're seeing. Eighteen times, this is what we're doing. We are doing this. Luke includes himself because he's the one writing this, and says, we were there. We can't overlook the importance of this is not a one-man show. 
This is not Paul's and Paul and his disciples' show. This is Christ. And we are his ambassadors. And because we are his ambassadors, he's called us to go, therefore, and proclaim his name. Teach others. Share the gospel with others. That is the heart. And Paul does that. And there you see that he, it's having an effect because he's not the only one doing this. It's all of us doing this. We're all meeting. We're all fellowshipping. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And you are part of the many. You and I are part of the many. The many includes you, to put it that way. It doesn't just include a pastor. Not only is Paul consistent, not only do we see that this is a we thing, but we also see that this is family, uh, fellowship incorporates family. It's a family thing too. What do you mean? Verse 5. Verse 5 says, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. Luke could have easily, easily written, Luke could have easily written, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all accompanied us until we were outside the city. Luke takes the labor of adding with wives and children. Why? I don't know. I suspect, and I'm going to give you what I, what I think is important here, is that this is a family thing. This is what the church did as a family. They could have, again, he could have just kept it at, at they all. But he doesn't. He takes it a step further and describes that it's a, this is one of the things, and if I may illustrate it, this, this is one of the reasons why my wife and I, my second church, this is one of the reasons why I came to Cornerstone. It was a family-integrated church. I know there's other churches that have children's ministries, and you check them in, and you don't, they can't come into the, um, into the uh, sanctuary, or whatever you want to call it, the gathering hall, the fellowship hall, until they're in sixth grade. And then they can start worshiping as a family. One of the convictions that my wife and I had early on was that this is exactly, that responsibility belongs to the parents. And here, here at Cornerstone, Cornerstone allowed that to happen. Yeah, will your children get, a, get out of line? Yeah, absolutely. They might have to get disciplined, but that's okay, that's what you're called to do. It's your responsibility. And you do it with joy, of course, not to beat them and just show them, you know, who you really are. No, on the contrary. It's to win them. To win them with the gospel. But it's your responsibility as parents. Parents, be careful. Just like there was a warning last week, oh, let them do it. You know, they're going to, well, this week, there's also a warning. It's your responsibility. They're watching. Where do they see that your energy gets put into? Do they see that your energy gets put into the things of this world or into the things of the Lord? Where do they see your energy? So I'm not saying that you need to be in church 24-7. That's not what I'm saying. So if that is what you're thinking, let that thought move on. 
What I'm simply saying is, do they see that you have a heart for God's people too? Do they see that you have a heart to fellowship? Do they see that you have a heart to meet with God's people? Do they see you calling others and encouraging them? In your conversations on the phone, in the car, wherever it may be, do they hear you having those conversations? Because that's what it entails. Because they're watching. Believe it or not, you're creating little disciples. And you're going to create disciples one way or another. For good or for ill. You're creating disciples of something. Pay attention. Be careful. Beloved, and by the way, you don't have to be perfect because you're not going to be the perfect parent. Okay. You're going to drop the ball and you're going to fail. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross and then say, you know what? This is grace. Gives you a clean slate. Start over. And Lord, by your grace, help me to do it right the second time or the umpteenth time. Help me to do it. And that's what the cross is for. That's what grace is. And fellowship doesn't just incorporate family, but it also is something simple, beloved. Don't overcomplicate fellowship. Don't overcomplicate it. It doesn't have to be a production. Verse 6 And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. We saw the same verse, the same, the same concept, the same thing going on in Acts chapter 20. Just the chapter before. And when he, referring to Paul, had said these things with the elders in Miletus, he knelt down and prayed with them. It doesn't have to be a production. It just simply means I can go ahead and just share a coffee, a phone call, a prayer. You see the, the brother and sister hurting. Come up alongside of them. Let's pray. We can talk during the week, but let's pray now. Because that is exactly what our faith must look like. Don't say, oh, I'll pray for you. Yeah, maybe, yeah, I'll continue praying for you in the week. But I want to pray with you now. Take that time. Take the time to do that. Don't just simply shrug it out and say, ah, oh, you know, the, whole, the right thing is, yeah, I'm going to pray. But it, has to be, it could be something as simple as that. It could be way more. But at the minimum, it could be simply, just simply praying for one another. That, and that we can do. So don't take those things for granted. Look purposely to fellowship with one another. Now there's the other dynamic. That's the fellowship side. Now we see what authentic concern looks like. You, you know what it's like to be concerned for others, right? You guys in between spouses, you've had those conversations, whether your kids, oh, I'm so concerned for Johnny or, or for such and such, you know, I... I don't think he's making the right choice. I don't, I don't think he's going to make the right decision. Or she, yeah. And you're concerned and you have a hot... Or this brother or this sister, I don't know. They're just they're changing jobs again. and I don't, They want to change churches and they're going to go somewhere else and they forget that they're taking the problem with them. How do I bring that up to them? We heard about this, right? It's uncomfortable. We heard this a couple weeks ago. It's uncomfortable to have those conversations, but you need to have them. Because it comes out of an authentic heart of concern. And that concern needs to be expressed. It needs to be spoken of with a heart to let them know where you're at. So here we see they're concerned for Paul. Verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Paul, wait, stop. Think about this. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, Philip and his four unmarried daughters 
a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how... Um, yeah, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now what we're seeing is that, and they're obviously trying to encourage him, don't go. Don't go. Now, they're expressing that concern, but these two verses bring a problem before us, theologically. There's a tension if you see what's happening here. Right? Let me, if there's no tension for you now, let me, make, let me solidify that. Let me make that a little firmer. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What's happening here? Is the Holy Spirit telling Paul, don't go? And Paul is clearly disobeying? Is that what's happening? Well, let's look at this. Let's study this. What's the tension? Well, number one, we have to know what we know. And we have to start there. Number one, we're fallible. Right? You and I are not perfect. And neither is Paul, by the way. To your astonishment. Paul is not a perfect man. He calls himself the chief of sinners. So, he's no different than you and I are. He's a redeemed sinner just like you and I are if you're in Christ. Plain and simple. Could, have Paul, could Paul have disobeyed the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Absolutely. Why not? He wouldn't be the first, by the way. Remember a guy named Jonah? Remember a guy named Moses? In other words, beloved, there's no different. These were men of God. But they're, they're there and they've disobeyed. The only one that never, ever disobeyed the Father was Jesus. That's it. Everybody else is in the other category. So Paul could have done that. But I don't think that's what's, what Scripture is, is telling us. It's not that Paul disobeyed the Spirit. On the contrary, what we see is Paul is aware the Holy Spirit is converted. In other words, through these disciples, their entire, then he, they're being told, he's being told, or what he's hearing at least is, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. Paul just told, I mean, of course, the disciples here are not aware of that conversation in Miletus. But Paul knows. What you're telling me is, what I, tell me something I don't know. The Spirit has already told me this. That imprisonment and affliction await me. So you're not telling me anything new. He knows about it. But for the believers there, this seems to be something new to them. They don't know what has been revealed to Paul. They just know that through the Spirit. Now, so could it, so I don't think Paul is disobeying, so that's off the table. So is the Holy Spirit then contradicting himself? I don't think the whole, the, the, number one, we know the Scripture doesn't contradict, God doesn't contradict himself. We are fallible. God's Word is infallible. So we start with those two givens. And then we move forward. So if the problem is not with God, then who is the problem with? It's going to be with me. If God is consistent and I'm inconsistent, the problem is going to be with me. It's not going to be with God. So we start there. And so here, 
We know that the Holy Spirit can't be contradicting himself, telling Paul, go to Jerusalem, and then the other side, no, don't go. It's not the way God works. So, what's happening? What I understand, and the grammar is interesting, because what's happening is that through the Spirit in verse 4, it, 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 it's understood as they are through the Spirit. In other words, in the Spirit, they're being shown these things. Now, as they're being shown these things, they are reacting to what's being shown to them. So much so that like, Paul is going to be imprisoned. He's going to, this is what's going to, you know what, Paul, don't go. Brother, don't go. Wait. And so that is exactly what's, what I understand is happening. So now, when you come to Agabus, a couple of verses later, a prophet, and we're going to deal with that in a second, but here he is, Agabus is not saying anything different. He's actually in agreement with what's happening, what's being said in verse 4. This is how they're going to bind you, brother. Takes the, takes the belt, wraps it around, this is how they're going to bind you. The man that owns this belt, is this is how they're going to bind you. And we know that this is what happens to Paul. So, it is clear that it seems that they are reacting to this. To this revelation, Agabus being a prophet. Now, as a side note, what is the role of the prophet? Do we have prophets today? I don't believe we do. In the sense of the way it's used here in the New Testament at the beginning of the apostolic era. That whole prophecy, yes, it says you seek those things, but the modern day prophet, as I've said before, is the one that preaches God's word. That is the, I'm not going to have any special revelation that's going to, I mean, I don't know. If you, if you want me to tell you, the Lord had told me, I mean, you better run. Run. The Lord told me. The only one that I know that recently, and I'm not going to share it, but was, uh, <laughs> was Edwin, right? Um, okay, I will share it. Um, <laughs> but you know where our brother stands. And recently, my wife, and I didn't know this, I found out after, because we got a text that you know that uh, Laura, their daughter, and Isaac, their son-in-law, are, have, are expecting and so we get a, um, he said, Isaac sends me the text, hey, he sends me the, the picture, whatever, and wow, praise the Lord, you know, this and that. Girl with Nana, she goes, she starts laughing. I'm like, what are you laughing about? She goes, you're not going to believe it. I'm like, what? Does that went on? I'm like, I need to call her. Why? What's happening? She goes, well, I had a dream a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I had a dream, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like I had a dream that Laura was in that dream with a baby stroller. Walking behind me and waving. And so, of course, she shares that. Edwin doesn't think of it, right? He just, yeah, yeah, you know, you know where he stands. He's not going to pay attention to it. And then a couple weeks later, guess what? She's pregnant. <laughs> and so she calls him in the morning, like, brother, you know, about that. <laughs> and so, of course, my daughter's like, oh, do you see anything from Miguel? <laughs> Margarita's on the complete opposite. She's like, do you see anything for Miguel? And for, I'm like, okay, look, uh, this is not the way it works, okay? <laughs> but, but that's, believe me, if my wife tells me the Lord showed me something, even if it's my wife, I'm going to be extremely skeptical. Because that is not. But, and she never said, by the way, and I want to be clear, she never said, the Lord showed me this. It was just a dream. It was just a dream that she had, and she just shared it. That was it. It wasn't a prophetic image or dream, okay? But that is not the way prophecy 
is, is happening here. Here, the actually could get a revelation, but typically, we know what it says in Ephesians 4, right? That you have, those are the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds, the teachers, right? They're there in Scripture during this time. Now, once the, apostol, the last apostle passed away, that's it. There's no need. Because remember, the New Testament is being written now. The New Testament is being written. They don't have, they only have the old. They don't have the new. And so as, as, the, as the New Testament is being confirmed, that's it. Now we have the New Testament. It's a closed canon. You can't add another book. You can't take away from it. It's scripture. So therefore, I don't need to tell you God said this. Because now it's already in God's word. So all I need to do is look to God's word and tell you this is what the Lord said in his word. Period. Easy. It's actually a lot easier for me because back then if you were wrong, you know what happened. I could be wrong here, but I'm just saying, guys, this is how I'm, I'm reading my Bible. These are my Bible glasses. They might be a little bit foggy, but I'm reading them. And this is what I'm, this is what I'm seeing. But it's God's word at the end of the day that I want to proclaim. It's God's word at the end of the day that we want to encourage other people with. That's what we want to point them to. You, st- you stand under God's word. You don't need to be looking for someone to give you a vision and tell you, oh, you know, what, what did the Lord show you? What did the Lord tell you? You don't need that. What are your Bible? Read your Bible. Study His Word. Go in fellowship. Abide in Him. John 15. Abide in your Savior and look to Him. Now, that is what I understand is happening. The Scripture is showing us that Paul understands that he's, yeah, the Lord showed you the same thing He showed me. And therefore, I'm going to go ahead and I'm not going to dismiss you. I'm not going to be dismissive of your concern. But it's good that they were able to share that. I mean, I don't know if I would have done that. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm like, no, you're Paul, you know. Like, look what you've done. Like, look how the Lord is using you. Who am I really? I mean, you probably know better than I do, Paul. Do your thing. But they're coming with a heart of concern and saying, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you, brother. Now, for us, we're going to see how Paul reacts to that. But Jesus had the same heart. The exact same heart. What was Jesus' heart? The cross before him. And that's where he went. He had the, the crosshairs, right? In the crosshairs was the cross. In the crosshairs was the cross. And that's where Jesus set his face toward. And that's where he went. And he did it gladly. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. Because he was convinced that this was exactly what he came here to do. He came to undo. He came to set the things back on the course that they were meant to be on. Where death no longer has a sting for those that are in Christ. Where death no longer, where sin no longer has power. But now the counselor comes and lives among his people and in his people. That's what Jesus did. So Paul is following in the exact same footsteps. So he's, there's an authentic conviction here. A complete authentic conviction. As he said, Paul is clear on his calling, just like Jesus. Notice that Paul doesn't say, brothers, (laughs) thank you, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it, because that's the that's real Christian thing to do, right? You have to pray about everything. 
for Paul, there was no, let me, let me pray about it. Hey, guys, this is clear to me. This is clear as day. Not only did the Spirit show it to me in Miletus, but there's a guy by the name of Ananias. After his road in Damascus, after he converted, remember that Jesus approaches Ananias. Tells him, Ananias, go tell Paul what he's going to have to suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul already knew from the beginning of his ministry that this is what his calling was. So Paul, his conviction is unwavering. It's not going to change. In Philippians 1.21, that famous verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why could Paul say that? Because that's exactly what he believed. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We're all going to an eternal place. All of us. What that eternal place will be depends. You believe in the gospel. You believe in Jesus who died for you and died for your sins. If that's what you believe, then your eternal place will be with him. There's a room that's already been prepared for you. But if you're still waiting and depending on your works of righteousness, of good works, if that is what you are still banking on, you're also going to go to an eternal place. But it's not going to be with Christ. It's going to be a place where there's torment day and night. So come to Christ. That's the call. Come to Christ. And Paul understood that. That's why he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, that is the gospel. And that is the gospel that Paul embraced. That is the gospel that Paul believed. That is the gospel that Paul proclaims. That is the gospel that Paul is holding on to. That allows him to say, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay. Bind me, imprison me, afflict me, do whatever you want. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to kill me, it's okay. Because I'm ready to give my life for my Lord. Teach your heart, beloved. Teach your heart. Thy will be done. Not my will, but yours. Teach your heart now, kids. If you're walking Christ, teach yourself. Teach your heart to say that. Let it not be my will, but yours that's done. So that in the future whatever change, whatever circumstance, whatever comes that you are not completely aware of, that you did not expect, but that providentially God brought into your life, you can go ahead and say, your will be done. Because that is exactly what our sister Chewy has learned to say. Not my will, but yours be done. So even if I'm going through chemo now, as uncomfortable as I may be, your will be done. That is what it's about. It's a sign of spiritual, uh, of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of spiritual authenticity. Is that not the goal of your faith? Everybody wants to hear, job well done, good and faithful servant. And praise the Lord, you should yearn to hear that. But to get there, 
to be able to hear job well done. I mean, we know that the job well done isn't because of the things that we did. It's because of Christ and his work of righteousness. Because we know that our best work are filthy rags before him. But, but, teacher, if you teach yourself to say, your will be done, Father, that is what grounds you. Because you know that there's one that's perfect. One that knows and is holding you. That is the goal of our faith. Not our will, but, but his will that's done. Align your heart. Don't buck against the very things that your heavenly Father has put against, uh, in your way, in your life. It's easy to buck. It's uncomfortable. It is extremely uncomfortable. At times it is unbearable. But I promise you, if you teach yourself to say that when you come out through the other side, when you look back, you won't exchange it for anything. Because it is through that moment where you learn to see your father, where you learn to see his character, where you got to see how he was sustaining you when you think that you were just going to buckle and collapse. You won't exchange it for anything. That's the beauty of God's grace. In conclusion, yeah, that's exactly what I saw this past week. In Luz, I saw in Tui, authentic faith, spiritual authenticity. Your will be done. Your will be done. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. One had been walking with the Lord for many years, which is Chewy. Luz, you, know, you taught her, and she might not be able to, you know, in many ways, be a theologian, because guess what? God doesn't require you to be a theologian to enter heaven. You just need, you just need to know one thing. Did he die for you? Did Jesus pay for your sins on the cross? That's the only truth. That's the only question that you can't get wrong. Because if the answer is no, bad news. But when you understand the good news that He did die for you and your sins, if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus, at the end of the day, was authentic in every way. Authentic in his person, authentic in his character, authentic in his heart for the lost, authentic in his relationship with his father, authentic with his disciples. What you see is what you got. You saw Jesus, and you're getting the Father. And extremely authentic and fulfilling. His mission, which is dying on the cross for sinners like us. May you come to know this Jesus, who was authentic in every way. And if you don't know him, may you put your faith and trust in him and only him. Amen? Amen. Father, it's your word, and forgive me if I've misspoken. Just keep your word in the heart of your people. May they hide your word in their hearts that they may not sin against you. 
Encourage them in the gospel. Encourage them in their Savior. And no matter what happens this week, they know that their Savior is in that valley. He's sure that you're not just a God of the mountaintops. You walk with us in those valleys. Which is why the psalmist could write that he will fear no evil. And so, Lord, as your people, you know, as your sheep, Lord, we are messed up. So messed up. But we come to you as our good shepherd. And thank you for holding us. For persevering. For allowing us to persevere. For keeping us. For not giving up on us. You never will. Because you, Lord Jesus, said that those that the Father has given you, not one have you lost. No one can pluck those that you have, Jesus, from the palm of your hand. Thank you that we're accounted among your sheep. And Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that they would come to know Jesus, the sweetness of Christ, the one that is ready to take them in more than they think. Because he was a friend of sinners. Thank you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.